Hello. Good morning. Thanks for spending time at the Way Fellowship this morning. Really appreciate it. My name is Steve Kyle. I'm an elder here and uh, have the privilege of closing out another book this morning. And I was thinking about just sort of where we've come as a fellowship since we started. So we've covered um, the books in the New Testament of Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and now 1st John. That's 13 out of 27. And the reason, um, the reason I, I point that out is that as a group of elders, one of the things that we want to be a hallmark of the Way Fellowship is expositional verse-by-verse teaching. Um, if and I'm not um, criticizing anybody's choice of a church, but if a church doesn't teach the Bible and doesn't reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ, no disrespect meant to anybody, it's not a church, not a Christian church, anyway. So the expositional teaching is really, really important. Um, so we're going to finish up First John chapter 5, and we're continuing sort of in our pursuit of... Um, if you were at the family meeting last week, you may remember uh, D.A. actually talking about Colossians 1.28, which is our theme verse as a church, um, which him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's not the New King James, that's King James, but essence is the same. The reason I point that out is, first of all, we preach, right? And that's, that's not, that's individual. That's each of us preaching. We're all on the mission field from the time we walk out the door. You're on the mission field when you're in your, with your family at home. We're always on the mission field, everybody individually, number one. Number two, so we warn, that's the word admonish, and we, and we uh, teach every man that we may present every man perfect. And that word perfect is essentially it means fully mature. So that's what we as individual Christians in the Way Fellowship, that's what we're striving for. But that's also the goal for other people to whom we preach Christ. So that verse is critically important. And our finishing up 1 John 5, we just continue in that, in our progress toward every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Um, so now, before we actually jump into the text, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, for a place to meet, for the grace you have shown us. And more than anything, as we sang this morning um, in our worship songs, uh, this is about you and about your son, Jesus Christ. We request your presence, not only in this meeting, but in hearts individually, that, you, that your purposes are accomplished, that we walk more closely, obey more quickly, listen more carefully, and, uh, and we thank you for your word, for its relevance to us this morning. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so let's, um, I think just read, Joel last week taught up through verse 9 of first chapter, uh, first John chapter 5. So let's read the remaining verses of that chapter. First John chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him, God, a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. 
And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All righteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. So one of the first things I want to mention that occurs this t- three times in this verse, but one of the hallmarks of First John we talked about initially was the whole idea of love. Um, and you may remember we talked about the fact that this is the Greek word agape. This was a new concept. This isn't used outside the New Testament. This was a new love. This was a love that was um, a love by decision of will. This is, we're going to look at several things today, but this is, this is the kind of love where, you know, the, Jesus first talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, love your enemies. Wait a minute, what did you just say? Love your enemies, right? Or this is the kind of love that Jesus Christ portrays in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying that uh, it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this kind of love. It's that kind of love. It's not the wishy-washy emotional love that sometimes we associate with the word love in this country. It's a different kind of love. That's a huge concept in John's writings, especially in 1 John. Of all of the places that that word love occurs, the Greek word love occurs in the New Testament, a third of them are in the Gospel of John and in 1 John. So it's a huge concept. And probably, I wanted to point this out because we're going to see this. This is supposed to be the hallmark of the Christian believer. In other words, you know, if, if there were a label, if you were to wear a t-shirt, so to speak, if there were a label, what the label is supposed to be is you express love in the way you act and speak. That's, we'll see that that's what Jesus Christ himself says. But before we look at that, that's in John chapter 13. Let's look at a couple things leading up to that. Uh, just to give you a little context and, and understand more the impact of what he says when he talks about Love being the hallmark of the Christian life. So, <clears throat> first of all, um, in this, in John 13, before, when we read that record, before that record happens, what the events leading up to it, number one, even though communion itself is not recorded in John, that, that Jesus Christ instituted that, it is in the other three Gospels, but it's just before this incident that we're going to read about, love and when Jesus washes their feet 
It's just before that that Jesus Christ institutes communion. He says, this is my body, um, this is the bread, this is the, the wine, this is my body, this is my blood. He institutes that. And then right after that, he says, he notes the fact that the one who betrays him is sitting at the table with him. Right? And then the disciples who are there, they, they start to sort of ask among themselves, well, who is that? Is that me? Is that, who is that? And then right after that, and please put yourself in the situation now, right after that, we see Luke chapter 22, verse 24, which says, hopefully, oh, there we go, which says, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Yes, you read that right. Jesus Christ just instituted communion. He just said the person who was going to betray him was at the table with him. The disciples talk about that. And then they start talking about this. Who's going to be the greatest among them? And this isn't the first time. There's at least, you can look at this, but there's at least two other times that this is recorded in the Gospels when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. <clears throat> now, and um, this word dispute, just a little detail. This word dispute in this verse, there was a dispute among them. This is a Greek word that's only used one time. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. <clears throat> and what it means is eager contention. In other words, this was an argument they very much wanted to have. This wasn't the first time, and they're into it. Okay, let's talk about this. This was not a one-and-done deal. This was the third or fourth time, and they're into it. Right? <clears throat> and then it's after those events that we just talked about that we see Jesus Christ in John 13, verses 4 and 5. It says that Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And what that means when it laid aside his garments, there was a kind of a, a two-piece garment, so to speak. There was a there was a tunic that they would wear right next to the body, probably long sleeves. There was a girdle that probably extended down to legs. But then there was a kind of an outer garment. What this is referring to is that he took off the outer garment. He takes a towel. He kind of binds it around himself or maybe around the girdle that he's wearing. He puts a you know, basin full of water. And just let's read the rest of this and then we'll talk about that. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So just the way he does this, you know, he didn't wet a towel and then just go and wipe their feet with the towel. He does it full blown. He gets himself a basin. He kneels down. He gets, he washes their feet. He wipes them. He does the full deal. He doesn't do it halfway. He's going to show them what's, and we'll see this. He's going to show them what service means. And remember, <laughs> just to understand the impact of this and, and the guy that we're reading about, First John, the guy that wrote this, he's sitting here. His feet get washed here, guys. He's right there, firsthand, front row. He's right there. <clears throat> so this is, just remember when you read these records, this is Jesus the Messiah. He doesn't need to do this. <laughs> but he does. He doesn't need to do this. Anyway, let's go on. Um, to John thirteen thirty five, which was why we picked this up, this idea of love and the hallmark of Christianity like it's talked about in First John. John thirteen thirty five says, By this 
all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, first of all, so that's supposed to be the label. That's supposed to be the hallmark of the way we act and speak. If you want more specifics, we're going to look at only one aspect of this. I really enjoyed, I think it was when he was doing First John 4, I think. DA talked about the characteristics of love, which you know, I encourage you either on your own or maybe in home fellowships. You want to, might, might want to look at in more detail 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 4 through 7. That's where it talks about the characteristics of love. We're only going to look at one of those now. But it's just, you know, charity, love, suffers long, is kind, envies not, does not vaunt itself, isn't puffed up, doesn't behave itself rudely, does not seek its own benefit or gain, isn't provoked, which is the one we're going to look at more. Um, all of those characteristics have very specific things and, and very specific guidance for how we're supposed to act and speak. You know, especially to loved ones like family, that's critically important because remember, you moms and dads, you're passing on Christianity to the next generation. They're going to learn it from you. At least the first, you know, five to seven years, eight years, whatever. They're learning this by example or not. Um, and hopefully after that, you know, if they've learned by example, they begin to kind of get, get their own wings, so to speak. But until then, they're looking at me. They're looking at you. So this was supposed to be the hallmark, you know, love. This new kind of love, this I decided to love, this is love your enemies kind of love. This is the I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this Gethsemane kind of love. This is not the old stuff. So one aspect that we're going to look at is just the idea of getting provoked. And don't, don't ever tell DA this, but the King James Version actually fell down on the job here in First Corinthians 13. Five it is, because it says... Love, charity, love is not easily provoked. The Greek, there's no Greek word for easily in there. It says love is not provoked, period. That's what it says. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is um, I want to look at one instance biblically. That word provoke, it's only used four times in the New Testament. One of those is positive. Well, two are positive. The first Corinthians 13, and then you may be familiar with Hebrews 10, 24. You know, let us provoke one another to love and to good works. That's that same word, provoke. But the other couple of times, and it's used, actually, we're going to read the only time it's used kind of negatively. The other time is when Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, and, and they have a God to everything. And it says his spirit was provoked in him. And he preaches Christ on, you know, Areopagus, on Mars Hill. So we're going to look at the only place where it's not used in a positive sense. A um, little bit of background. This has to do with Paul and Barnabas and with um, after the first missionary journey where they went together, Paul says, um, and we'll in Acts, I think it starts in 1526, he says, why don't we go back to the places where we went and see how they're doing? Now, total aside, if you read about the first missionary journey and what Paul went through, the fact that he wanted to go back is amazing. But I'll let you read that record in Acts 13 and 14. After what happened, I'm not sure I'd go back, but he said, yeah, let's go back. So then they have a, a they talk about whether to take John Mark with them on the journey or not. Now, on the first missionary journey, John Mark started out with them, but then he left. 
And again, you can read about that. We're not going to look at that. He left the field. He decided that wasn't for him. He was going to go back home. So, um, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement about whether to take him or not. And let's look at um, let's look at Acts 15. This is going to be a little out of sequence as far as it's Acts 15, 39 and 40. And I hope that I didn't mess you up there, um, Marty. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted one from another. And it's, it's this word contention is our word provoke, the provocation. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Now, I'm not going to presume to say one person was wrong and another right. Not saying that at all. I'm only saying somebody got provoked <laughs> because that's the word used. Somebody got provoked. The sad part of this is with the great work that Paul and Barnabas did, and, and a little background on Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was the first one after Paul's conversion. And you know, pa Paul's on his way to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians. He's converted on the way. He still goes into Damascus. He preaches. They decide, okay, since you changed camps, we're going to kill you. So they get him out of Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. Everybody's afraid to be with Paul in Jerusalem. No, he was just the guy that was killing people. I'm not going to be with him, including the apostles. Barnabas was the first one to say, okay, guys, this is Paul. He's okay. He was the first one to bring Paul into the apostles. He was also the first one when the word started to spread a little bit up north of Jerusalem in Antioch, which is the first place it really started to, to take hold. Um, the apostles send Barnabas up there. Barnabas sees what's happening, how God is moving. He goes up to Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown. He gets Paul from there, brings him down to Antioch, and they're there for a year teaching God's word. Barnabas is the one who does that. The point being, <clears throat> Barnabas and Paul were a united, a united pair with the same frame of mind. They wanted everybody to hear about Christ. The sad part is, after this incident we just read in Acts 15, they never worked together again. This is the last time Barnabas is mentioned. He's mentioned one other time. Paul mentions him one other time in 1 Corinthians 9. And he mentions him as if, Paul's, as if Barnabas is an equal. In other words, you know, Paul still considers him an apostle, so to speak. Still considers him doing the work of the ministry. But they never work together after this provocation. The reason I point that out is, it's, you know, provoke is like, and I, I think I, I resort to this, you know, I sort of focus in on this aspect of, of love because, maybe because I have the most trouble with it, possibly, I don't know, maybe. I, not that I don't have trouble with other aspects, but, you know, if I get provoked, I tend to do things that I don't mean to do, say things that I don't mean to say, and suffer consequences that I can't, that I don't have any control over after the fact. You can say, after you say something, you get provoked, you can say, ah, I take that back. But what you can't take back is the effect. You can't take back the effect. The effect of those words is going to stay. The effect of your, the expression on your face, that's going to stay. You can't change that. You can't take that back. You can't erase that memory. So, <coughs> um, 
And the other interesting thing about this is this, you know, John Mark. Again, kind of a separate issue. But Mark, earlier on, he's referred to as John Mark. Later, he's just referred to as Mark. This is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. This is the Mark that Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls Mark his son. You know, he's kind of a, a right-hand guy. And this is the same Mark that at the end of Paul's life, when he's in prison in Rome, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, bring Mark with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. This is that Mark. So this provocation that we read about in Acts 15, this, you know, where somebody got provoked, where the love of God doesn't get provoked, there was no good thing about this. There was no good thing about it. And there's no good thing when you and I get provoked. You know, again, we should be, you know, have T-shirts. <laughs> the hallmark is love. If we're Christians, we love. One of the aspects of it is we don't get provoked. Um, so it, it begs the question, just how is my example of the love of God? As we've talked about before, people don't read the Bible first, typically. They read you. They read me. They're going to read. And, and sometimes, not that I ever would advocate this, but Sometimes people don't ever get to the point of reading the Bible. They read other Christians. And they may commit to Christ, they may share, but they're not necessarily reading the Bible regularly. They're reading Christians. What they learn about in Christianity is what they see. So how is my example? You know, is is somebody going to want to be a Christian because of how I act or speak? Is that going to happen? Or are they going to say, you know what? I think I'll just go my own way here because it didn't work for him. Now the next, so the hallmark concept of love is one huge thing in First John. The next thing that uh, we see a hallmark in this chapter is eternal life. And this is another instance where we talked about the word love and of all of the times that word love occurs in the New Testament, a third of them are in the Gospel of John and First John. It's the same way with the word eternal. Of all of the times it occurs in the New Testament, one out of three is in the Gospel of John and First John. And uh, three times in this chapter, actually, verses 11, 13, and 20. But in talking about, I, I thought about this concept of eternal life. And what, why does it matter? Why does he make it a point of saying you have eternal life? Why does that matter? And let's look at a little bit of background from God's perspective, why it matters. First of all, when we read the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at a couple things, but remember Genesis is history. Genesis is not fable. Genesis is not story. Genesis is history. We don't read about death until after man's disobedience. That was not part of the original plan. We don't read about that until Genesis chapter 3 as a consequence of man's action, number one. Number two, let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It's just a fantastic verse when you wrap your mind around this. It's just fantastic. It says there, and they, this is referring to Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now let's just talk about that phrase. First of all, (laughs) first of all, from the way that reads, Hearing the sound, and the word sound there, what did they hear, right? They heard his footsteps. So this is the first instance in God's word when the creator who said, 
let there be light, created the heavens and the earth, made everything in six days, decides he's going to commune with his created, with his crowning glory, man, that he's going to commune with him in human form because he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. The other thing you learn from this is this was not a new sound to Adam and Eve. <laughs> they were familiar with this. That's the Lord. They heard his footsteps. It wasn't new. Not like there were any other people around anyway at this point. But it wasn't new. They were familiar with that. The other thing, though, is it, it indicates from the start what God wanted. He wanted fellowship. He's going to spend time with his created man and woman. He's going to walk in there and he's going to spend time with them. So you see all of that from this verse. And then uh, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden because of shame. We'll talk about, you know, this is, it, um, it is, we'll talk about this later too, I think, because, uh, let me just re reference it now. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Now little children, abide, we talked about what abide meant here a few chapters back, abide meaning consistently be, you know, act in a Christian manner, you know, sort of live in Christ. Now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. The very same thing that Adam and Eve felt after they disobeyed and their first encounter with God, shame. That's what we don't want to feel when we see Jesus Christ face to face. That's what we don't want. But that's what man has felt from the start when he didn't do what the Lord said. <clears throat> Let's, uh, so that's, from the beginning, we see that God wanted fellowship and that death wasn't part of the plan. Again, we're talking about eternal life here. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 21. When we get to the book of Revelation, when we start to study that book, one of the great things you see is that the book of Revelation is the complement to Genesis. Genesis starts out with paradise. Revelation ends with paradise. Genesis starts out with the fellowship between God and man and man, God being with man heard the steps of the Lord God in the cool of the day in the garden. Revelation 21 ends with man, God living with man. Okay, so they're, they're a complement. But let's just look at, and, and well, let's just look at Revelation 21, 3 and 4. It says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, just like we didn't read about death before man's fall, man's disobedience, indicating that it wasn't part of the original plan, this indicates it definitely wasn't part of the original plan because God's bringing it around, back around to the way that it was. This wasn't the way this was supposed to be. So the concept of eternal life is really, really important from God's perspective because that's what he always wanted for man. <laughs> it wasn't like 70, 80, 90 years in the hole in the ground. That wasn't the design. But from a human perspective, I thought about this just in terms of sort of how it 
can change day-to-day life. Um, And let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 says, uh, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So, there we see that... um, even mundane, even kind of, I will say, menial tasks. You know, something that a, a servant would do. And servants in biblical times, they weren't, I mean, they were, they were, rec- they were paid, so to speak. But they were more, not, not in terms of abuse, but they were more property than they were an employee. I mean, they might, they would probably be asked to do things that you and I would almost certainly be considered, would consider menial would uh, consider, you know, the worst job, so to speak. But Paul, here and in Ephesians chapter 6, he does the same thing with, with servants, bond servants. He encourages them, even the little things, you do it not with eye service as men pleasers. In other words, you're not just watching the master. When he looks, you're going to do something good. But when he's not looking, ah, I'm good. I don't have to do it. No, he says you serve even on the little things as if you were serving Christ. And that there was a reward for that. Now, the reward is not here. You know, the rewards that we're going to realize because of Christian living are not here. They're in that eternal life part. We've talked about Romans 14, 12. I think another place you can look, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, Paul talks about in both places about the personal responsibility, the, the face-to-face time we're going to have for rewards, not for salvation, but for rewards. That's, it's a face-to-face time. It's a, it's a, do you get the rewards time? It's a, did you serve with eye service as men pleasers, or did you serve the Lord Christ? And, and remember, we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about God. I think for me anyway, too, and maybe, maybe you, but there is a tendency for us to think that, you know, sort of God doesn't know what we're thinking or why we're doing what we're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, please just remind yourselves, God knows everything. (laughs) He knows why I did what I did. He knows what I did, but more importantly, he knows why I did what I did. He knows the motivations. When Paul says to the servants, you know, not as I, not uh, uh, men pleasers, you know, not I service as men pleasers. The Lord knows. He knows the difference. So when we are um, you know, seeing the Lord face to face, so to speak, for those rewards. Um, when do, do we want to feel the shame like Adam and Eve uh, felt when they disobeyed and their first encounter with God after that was shame? Or like we talked about in, let's read First uh, John 2.28. I recited it here earlier, but it says, And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So there's two options, right, in that verse. Two options. Number one, confidence. Number two, shame. So the kicker on that is you decide which one. (laughs) You decide how you're going to feel. Because how you feel when you see him face to face is predicated on 
how we act now. It isn't going to happen then. By then, it's a done deal. But it's predicated on how we act now. Are we abiding in Christ? Do we express love? Do we get provoked? Do we have all those characteristics of the love of God? And this is a, this is a journey. I mean, you know, again, I think I look at provoked because I probably tend to blow that one the most. Not that I don't blow the others too. But the point is, this is a journey. This is a never, you know, we're not finally there. One of the great things we learned in 1 John 1, 9 was that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. We need that. <laughs> Thank God he does that and that he does it right away. <clears throat> so, uh, again, just begs the question. Uh, the other thing I thought about before we talk about that, the other thing I thought about is, and I, maybe you don't do this, possibly you don't, I don't know. If you've ever rented a car, do you drive the rented car the same way you drive the car you own? Okay, now, I don't want to show of hands there. Okay. If you rent a home, if you've ever rented a home or apartment, do you treat that rent home or apartment the same way as if as the uh, apartment that you might, a condominium might own or a home you might own? Okay, now, the reason I point that out is frequently if we don't own something, we don't treat it the same way. And the whole idea of our eternal life being predicated on what we do now is kind of the same thing. I mean, are we living our lives, spending our time as if we're renters or we're owners? <laughs> are we living our lives now as if how we feel when we see him face to face is going to be predicated on what we do? Or are we not keeping that in mind? Because again, confidence or shame, that's determined now. Individually, that's determined now. Again, you know, the Romans 14, 12, the, I think, 1 Corinthians 5, 10, I believe it. Uh, anyway, those are face-to-face um, -face individual things, you know. It's not the way fellowship. It's not the Baptist tour group. It's not, the, it's not let's get all the Presbyterians in here. You know, it's not that. It's individual. Steve, why don't you, I'd like to talk to you for a minute. It's individual. It's single file. It's one at a time. So we have to decide now how we want to feel when we see him face to face. Do we want to feel the confidence? Do we want to feel the shame? Now, clearly what he wants is he wants us to feel confident. I mean, just like <laughs> when Adam and Eve are there and they've blown it and they hear God walking in the garden and they're ashamed, God says, you know, what happened? That's not what he wanted. He wanted fellowship. He wants fellowship with you. You know, I, as I was reading Genesis, rereading that record, I thought, could I recognize the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? That is to say, am I, do I have an ear for that? <laughs> am I listening? Am I going to tell if he's there and he wants fellowship with Because he wants fellowship. Again, that's one of the things we learned from that record. He wants fellowship with you individually. Again, it's not a, I mean, he wants fellowship with everybody. Remember, he wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But he wants fellowship with you individually. He wants to sit down with you and just chat like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So the, the love of God is a hallmark of 1 John and then that concept of eternal life. 
And then the, I want to talk about these verses that we read in 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Um, just so everybody sort of understands them. And let's just read these verses first. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, let's just point a couple of things out first. When we read in uh, verse 17, when it says all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death, clearly, John is making a distinction about types of sins, so to speak, you know. Number one, because he says all unrighteousness is sin, but there is a kind of sin that leads to death. We'll talk about that. So one thing, just keep in mind. The other thing is that um, the grammar, just the grammar of the passage, you know, the Greek grammar of the passage, what he's really talking about here is the life and the death or spiritual life and death. It's not a physical life and death, right? Number one. And number two, um, and we'll look at this too, but he's not talking about a one-time sin. This, in, in this verse, there's not a definite article sinning the sin. He just says sins a sin. That is to say, lives a sinful lifestyle. We'll talk about that. But that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. And when he, let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. It's, we have to, when we read God's word, it has to sort of define its own terms. So when we see these, verses 16 and 17, and he uses the word life and death, we have to understand what those terms mean in the, in the context. So if we look at 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, clearly somebody who does not believe in Jesus Christ can still be physically living, right? So that word life can't mean, can't refer to physical life. It refers to spiritual life. It refers to eternal life. You have the Son, you have eternal life. You don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. So it's talking about that kind of life. He defines that terms. It's the same way in verses 16 and 17. The life and the death, those are spiritual life and spiritual death. But again, he's talking about a habit of sin, not a single act. Okay? And th the reason I point that out is when he uses this word brother, he says if you see a brother sinning sins, living a lifestyle, so to speak, that word brother is very... <laughs> It's, uh, it would be good for us to think of that in terms of a professing Christian. That is to say, one who is not abiding in Christ. That by his actions, he indicates that, that, a decision, that a heartfelt decision for Christ may not have been made. His behavior doesn't reflect that. And let me, uh, there was a, I don't have a slide for this, so I'm simply going to read this to you, but there was a good kind of synopsis of this from a reference work that I frequently look at. And it says, between this, the distinction he's making here is between sins which flow from human imperfection and, and infirmity. Like, you know, okay, I blew it. I, I blew up on my wife because I got provoked. That's just a one-time shot. I'm sorry I did that. And sins which are open manifestations of a character alien from God. He's not talking about a one-time act. He's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about habitual, consistent, continuous sin. 
And remember, sin is just a, I mean, it, it, I think sin in some ways becomes kind of a church ease term. Um, it's, sin is simply missing the mark of Scripture. That is to say, Scripture establishes a, a standard for behavior. When we don't meet that standard, when we miss that mark, that is sin. We can, I mean, I call it sin because I'm, that's a familiar concept to me from God's Word. But if you're talking to somebody who doesn't have the background of maybe being raised in the church or reading the Bible or anything like that, you, you, you say the word sin. I, I think many times 21st century Americans think the idea of sin is, is antiquated. It's outdated. It's what does that really mean? Partly because we are evolving toward an anything goes, everything is okay kind of mentality and morality in America. So, really, they're moving toward there is no sin. But sin is a very biblical concept, number one. I mean, original sin, the reason we needed Jesus Christ. But also, after the fact, we're going to blow it. We're going to miss that mark because, as we talked about with 1 John 1, 9, otherwise the Lord wouldn't have said, okay, I know you're going to blow it. All you got to do is, from a contrite heart, say, I am sorry, I blew it, I admit that. And then you're back in alignment, so to speak, with your Heavenly Father who is righteous and with whom you need to be righteous. You, you act in a way that is godly. And then uh, the rest of this little quote here. John is speaking of sinful acts as revelations of character and not simply a single individual sinful act. This is a... The brother he's talking about here, if you see somebody who's a professing Christian, but he's not reflecting that in his daily life, you pray for him. You pray for him. You intervene on his behalf in prayer. And God is going to honor that and answer that prayer. The reason that's in two things when I read these verses, number one, just understand them. But number two, the f- idea of intercessory prayer. I don't, maybe somebody here, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for a show of hands. Maybe somebody who has been a prodigal person, that is to say, far removed from the Lord. Maybe you, a family member, a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, or whoever, is a prodigal. That is to say, they are removing themselves from God and from the Lord and from God's Word. Maybe you have been on either side of that equation. So these are verses that are critical to understand because that's the kind of thing this is talking about. And intercessory prayer, prayer on behalf of another, man, I'll tell you, we just, I don't think, and I know I don't, I guess I'll, I'll speak for myself, I don't realize the, the benefit, the power of intercessory prayer. And here's what I mean by that, just prayer in general, here's what I mean by that. Let's, uh, Marty, this is skipping ahead again, I apologize. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. So this is a couple of verses about the role of prayer in Jesus Christ's life. Now, and again, let me just remind you, this is the Messiah. <laughs> this is the Son of God. If anybody didn't need to pray like we think of prayer, it was Jesus. If anybody didn't need to do that, it would be him. But here's an example of the role that prayer played in his life. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Now it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, 
he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Now, several things we learned. Number one, he went alone to pray. Number two, he spent significant time. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you have done this. I have not ever spent all night in prayer. I've spent a couple of hours, but I've never spent all night in prayer. This is Jesus Christ, guys. <laughs> this is the Messiah spending all night in prayer. Number three, this was a critical decision in Jesus Christ's life. When we get to the end of Christ's life, he's got 12 guys. And those are the only 12 guys that at that point are for him. And maybe a few of the women. Everybody else is against him. So whom he chooses is really important. So before this important decision, what does he do? Spends all night in prayer. How powerful a tool is prayer if Jesus uses it this way? So when we see the idea of intercessory prayer in 1 John 5, about you know this brother who's not quite there yet, not abiding in Christ, and you're going to pray for him, how critical is that? Because we see the role that it played in Jesus Christ's life. Um, the other thing that I thought of is uh, the garden. We're not going to read the record, but the Garden of Gethsemane um, at the, the lowest point in Jesus' life, the, the point of greatest need, if you will, what does he do? He spends time alone in prayer, goes to God three times with the same request, finally gets his answer, and, and responds accordingly. So again, the role of prayer in Jesus' life, how important is, us, is it for us to look at First John 5, 16 and 17 and intercede in prayer on behalf of someone, you know, maybe a loved one, maybe not, maybe a Christian brother, maybe whatever, sister, whatever, how important is that intercessory prayer? So, and then uh, the last thing I wanted to mention here from 1 John chapter 5 is this, it's almost, it's almost as if John added this as an afterthought when he says in the very last verse, little children, and it, it's truly the word in Greek, little children. It's like, okay, little one, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I, I don't know about you. I think for most 21st century Americans, again, I think when we think of idols, um, like the Bible talks about them, we think that that doesn't really happen today. You know, we don't worship idols like that. And I'm not going to mention specifics to you, and I encourage you to actually do a little Google News search for this. But so a, a head of, uh, depending on the numbers you look at, either the most populous nation in the world or the second most populous nation in the world, the head of that country, recently, within two, three weeks, dedicated a, uh, a temple in his country to an idol. And I'm, not, I'm talking about a statue. I'm not talking about I'm talking about the kind of idols that these guys are talking about that Paul had to talk to the Athenians about, the, you know, the idol to the unknown God. That kind of an idol. And when you look up the news story, if you do, you will see a picture of this head of state, of this first or second most populous nation in the world. Down like, you can't see me, down like this. 
before the statue. Now, and that position, that, that being all the way flat out, we'll talk about that in a minute, that's called being prostrate. So he's prostrating himself, indicating total and complete submission. So this idea of keeping yourself from idols, remember now, um, there were, in the book of Genesis again, Genesis as history is just fantastic. So what's the first thing that the devil, the serpent, does with Eve? The first thing is he questions God's word. Didn't God say you could eat of every tree of the garden? So then Eve makes the mistake of conversing. But then he comes around to, God knows, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. First thing, he questions God's word and the, the truth of it. Second thing, he replaces God. So based on that record in Genesis 3, what's the first idol? Man. That's the first idol. The first idol is man. Now, so keeping yourselves from idols, let's, I want to mention one thing about the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we'll talk about it. And I'm going to show you this again. You probably can't see me, and I apologize. But anyway, so you can look at this later, but it's Matthew 26, 39. And it says, uh, yeah, it says that um, Jesus, you know, he's out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him. He leads them a little ways off. He goes out further, and it says, he fell on his face. Right. Now, one artist that it, it was just a fantastic illustration of that. Um, it sort of took my breath away when I saw it the first time. I thought, ah, because I hadn't thought of what that really meant that Messiah did at that point. But I'm going to show you how the illustration works, and hopefully you can see. Anyway, the illustration is Jesus on his stomach like this. Now, again, what he's, taught, what he's doing there, what he's demonstrating there is total and complete submission. Total and complete submission. And he's asking three times, is there any other way? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? But that is, as we've talked about before, probably the greatest demonstration of that agape love, that love that, you know, love your enemies, that Gethsemane love of, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this. That's that kind of love. And that's what we're, of course, called to do. That's supposed to be our hallmark. <clears throat> so he's, again, completely prostrate before the Lord. Now, I just want to make a point that, you know, we see Jesus doing that to God. The fact of the matter is, we are all prostrate to something. Everybody bows. Everybody bows. Nobody doesn't bow. It's not a question of whether you bow or not. It's a question of to what or to whom you bow. We're all prostrate. You can be the head of one of the largest countries in the world and prostrate yourself before a statue because that's exactly what he did. Or it can be to yourself, like the devil originally wanted Adam and Eve to do. He knows you'll be like gods. The first idol, man. But the important strategy there is the devil is always going to question the integrity of the truth of God's word in your life, number one. Number two, he's always going to try to replace the true God. There's got to be something else there. It can't be the true God. It can be money. It can be career. It can be 
anything but not the true God. There was a great quote, actually, from Billy Graham. Again, along the lines of in 21st century America, we think, you know, we don't, we don't have idols. We have lots of idols. We've just made them a lot more socially acceptable, that's all. We still have lots of them. Um, he says, uh, I don't have a slide for this, I apologize, I'll just read this to you. But anything can become an idol to us. That is, something we put in place of God. Some people, for example, make material success and the pursuit of money their goal in life. And they worship them with just as much devotion as someone might an idol made of stone. Others make beauty or prestige their goal. And these become idols because they put them first in their lives. Still, others pursue entertainment or sexual thrills or drugs or alcohol. And these become their idols. We have lots of idols. They may not be statues. They're more socially acceptable. They're less obvious. But they're still idols. Everybody prostrates themselves before something. Everybody bows. The question is not, do we bow? The question is, to what or to whom do we bow? Um, so, again, begs the question, you know, do we have idols? <laughs> to what or to whom are you and I prostrating ourselves? Is it self? Is it money? Is it the true God? Is it a statue like we see in the news lately? Again, you know, when we read these things in God's word, these are not anachronistic, archaic concepts. Idolatry, like we read about, is alive and well in the world. And honestly, it's alive and well in the United States too. Very much so. So, fantastic it's just a fantastic chapter and um, opportunity for the Lord to speak to our daily lives. How love is to be the hallmark. How eternal life, our idea of eternal life, our looking forward to eternal life, should elevate what we do on a daily basis to, uh, to a level of eternal significance. I'm not, you know, if I'm serving a church, I'm not cleaning the toilet because I'm cleaning the toilet. I'm cleaning the toilet for the Lord. That may sound cliche, but that's true. Because it elevates that menial task to eternal significance. Or that whole idea of intercessory prayer. How critical that is. And man, if, if there's a prodigal in your life, or if you were one, maybe you realize the benefit of this, don't stop praying. Don't ever stop praying. You know, like Luke 18, Jesus Christ talks about he tells them a parable that men ought always to pray and not to faint. You just keep praying. You just keep praying. Once you know it's God's will, you keep praying. And then um, this last idea we looked at of this whole, the whole thing of idols. Um, God's word continues to be quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even the divine assignment of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, our hearts, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when we read God's word, I, I know for me, I'm you know, kind of always building that attitude. Put yourself in there, first person, because it applies to us today. Um, if you have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, um, I want to give everybody an opportunity to do that this morning. 
and uh, encourage those who have come to a saving knowledge to pray with me. We're just going to pray out loud a short, simple prayer. It can begin your journey with the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not started that journey, and, or hopefully it can sort of remind you of that original commitment and of uh, spur you on to, to be abiding in Christ, you know, move you forward toward being confident when you see him face to face versus being ashamed. So pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you for forgiving me my sins in the work of your son. And I believe that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you give me the strength to live for you and your son every day of my life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the people who either said those words the first time or maybe it was for the 50th. We thank you for bearing with us in our infirmity, for remembering that we are dust and staying with us even as we are. I thank you for these people, for the, the blessing they are uh, to be here to make studying your word and fellowship with you, with your son, a priority in their lives. Uh, we again ask, Heavenly Father, for your presence, that your purposes are accomplished, that uh, we realize more and more each day that as soon as we walk out the door there, we're on the mission field, whether we're with wife, husband, kids, co-workers, people we don't know, whoever that is. They're going to be reading us, not necessarily the Bible. And I thank you for your goodness and letting us meet here this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of his precious son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for coming.